Good morning, church. Today's reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you that don't already know, my name is Matthew. Love getting to serve as a pastor here with a wonderful team of fellow shepherds around me. And I'm so thankful when we gather, friends, that what the members of this body are looking for and hungry for are not my thoughts, but God's. That gives me great confidence and comfort. My job is not to uh, sell ideas to you. My job is simply to give the sense so that we trust and believe what God is saying to all of us. So Lord, help us with that right now. Uh, thank you that at every moment in this meeting, we can, whatever's going on, just look to you and say, help Jesus. So give us eyes to see, a mind to understand, and a heart to trust and obey. I pray that we would be more interested, Lord, in hearing today what you are saying than what we have thought? Would you guard us from bringing preconceptions 
to your word or ideas of what might be true that are not rooted in Scripture but our experience alone or our upbringing or our family history. We, we want to be a people that builds out all our convictions that is governed in all that we do by the authority of the word of God. Would your word go forth in power today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have, I've noticed, Kingsway, that when you really love something, it's very hard to stay quiet about it. I, I, even all you introverts out there, you're like, I don't have to be with people. Well, if you really love something, introvert or extrovert, it's, it's hard to stay quiet. Why, why do sports fans love to boast about their teams? Or why do grandparents love to talk about their grandkids? Don't get started, John. <laughs> He's a case study for this. Or, or why is someone who has just found an amazing restaurant or just got back from an incredible destination vacation. Why, why are they just bubbling over with, I got to tell you. I, I think it's because a significant part of our experience of joy lies in sharing that joy with others. Actually, sharing that joy isn't just an expression of joy. It intensifies your joy. It adds to your joy. And, and friends, the God with whom we all have to do who created the world and and everything in it, think about this. He loves no one more than himself. He delights in no one more than himself. And that is good and right, not selfish or small-minded because no one is more glorious than him. And from eternity past, Before you were born, or a single sermon had been preached, the delight God has in himself has been a shared joy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have all participated in this communion of joy. And that is the joy, God's joy in God, that he delights to share with us. You you realize that's why Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave. To, to bring you into an experience of God's joy in God. John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you, Jesus says, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And if you want to experience God's joy in God, there's one thing you need, friend. One thing you need. You need to see Jesus and hear Jesus and experience Jesus for who he really is. That's the key. And God gets that life-giving, joy-producing mission done by setting apart a people for himself. He, He makes distinctions between the world and the church that are so clear and so sharp that the world knows where to look to see Jesus. Church membership matters 
in other words, because the world desperately needs the church to clarify who speaks for Jesus and who does not. Think about that. Because if if God's people are not distinct, if they're not identifiable, then Jesus is not distinct. And Jesus is not identifiable. And if Jesus is not distinct or identifiable, if the world never knows where to look to see Jesus, then his joy will never become their joy. You realize that? That, That's what this entire set apart series is ultimately about, friends. How do we exercise the responsibility God has given us to tell the community around us Look here to see Jesus. That's our responsibility. How do we do that? Well, we do it in an initial way by affirming professions of faith through baptism. We did that this morning. Welcoming believers into membership in the visible body of Christ. And we do that in an ongoing way. Look here to see Jesus. by continuing to affirm professions of faith through the Lord's Supper. We we identify members of the family who speaks for Jesus by welcoming them to the family meal. So the sermon this morning is going to be all about the Lord's Supper. And I want us to, to ask and answer from 1 Corinthians 11 and other chapters in this letter, three simple questions, okay? First, what is the Lord's Supper? Second, who should participate? And third, how do we celebrate? What is it? (laughs) Who participates? How do we celebrate? Okay? So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to move through this. There's much to cover. And if you have a Bible, do keep it open because we're going to be looking throughout this whole book. Okay? So what is the Lord's Supper? Three answers I'll give you. First, from Scripture, it's an act of remembrance. It's an act of remembrance. Put your eyes on verse 23, chapter 11. Paul reminds the Corinthians that the Lord's Supper is not something the church created. Hey, we got 10 more minutes in the service this morning. What can we do? No, it's a meal Christ himself prepared. For I what? I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's just passing it on. God built it. God cooked it. God prepared it. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Crystal clear. So as an act of remembrance, The Lord's Supper, eating the bread, drinking the juice, helps us to not forget the reality and significance of Jesus' death on the cross. His real body, signified by the bread, was broken for you. His real blood, signified by the cup, was shed for you. He died so you wouldn't have to die. He was condemned so you could be justified. 
He was stricken so you could be healed. Jesus was punished so you could receive mercy. But hear me, when Jesus says, the bread and the cup, do this in remembrance of me, he is not telling us to merely look back on the historical facts of the gospel like somebody's birthday. He's not. Are there historical facts to the gospel? Is the gospel a real historical fact? Yes. But the Lord's also exhorting us to remember the present implications and future promises of those historical facts. But because Jesus died and we died in him, Christian, what is presently true of you? Presently true of you. You're no longer enslaved to sin or to Satan. Or to death. You've been redeemed from the house of slavery. Set free to serve the Lord. Right now. Today. And what's true of you in the future? Let's remember that. Well, the hell we deserve has been replaced with the hope of heaven. Eating the bread, drinking the cup reminds us that that the real feast is, is yet to come, isn't it? Yet to come. It's, it's, it's the feast that we will enjoy with the Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. We're, we're looking forward to that. that. That's a future implication of the historical facts. In other words, the Lord's Supper is an appetizer. How many of you love appetizers when you go out to eat? Well, I have a love-hate relationship because if it's not good, then my excitement for the rest of the meal to come tanks, right? But if it's just mouth-watering good, what, what, what do you find yourself thinking, feeling? I can't wait for the next course, right? That's what the supper's designed to do. Awaken and stir your longing for the banquet to come. So as we eat and drink, we remember the road of suffering will surely end in glory. It's an act of remembrance. Second, it's an act of fellowship. What's the supper? An act of fellowship. When when it came to their practice of the supper, the Corinthians were in a ton of trouble. (laughs) They were in a heap of trouble. Um, As Paul says in verse 20, look there, chapter 11. You may be eating the bread and drinking the cup, but it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. It's not, guys. Well, I thought we were doing the bread thing and drinking the cup thing. Sure, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper. Why not? Well, apparently the church shared the supper as, as part of a communal meal. A dinner or a big lunch. And, and according to verse 21, rich members of the church were bringing piles of food and wine in. And having a grand old time in front of poor church members who had next to nothing. That's what their supper looked like. And the net result, look at verse 22, was was that they were creating divisions in the church, which, which just makes Paul indignant, to put it mildly. Verse 22, what? I love that. What? Are you crazy? Or are you out of your mind? Come on. 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Why was Paul so upset? Why was he so upset? Think think about all the things that you've read online this week and you were like, what? (laughs) Why did Paul have one of those moments? Response to this situation. Well, it's because their practice of the supper contradicted the, the very spiritual reality the meal professes. Namely, their, their unity in Christ as fellow members of his body. That's what the meal professes. Tur- turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. Hopefully just a page or two over. Chapter 10. Look at verse 16. Paul writes here, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That that word participation shows up twice, both places. It's the same word we translate other places in the New Testament as fellowship. It it describes a, a close association. A union, an an intimate relationship. That's what participation is between two parties. Fellowship, intimate. So why would Paul describe communion as fellowship, intimate relationship with the blood and body of Christ? I mean, does it seem a bit odd? Face value. Well, friend, it's because when you become a Christian, The Spirit of God unites you to the Son of God such that you are now in Christ. You're in Christ, okay? That's not a figment of the imagination or just a comforting thought. Literally, Jesus' relationship with the Father as the eternal Son becomes your relationship with the Father as adopted sons and daughters. You're in Christ, The fellowship he has eternally enjoyed with God becomes the fellowship we eternally enjoy with God. And that union, faith union with Jesus is so close. It's so real, in fact, spiritual sense, that we become part of his body. Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I'll just read this one. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ. So when we eat from a common loaf of bread in the Lord's Supper, we are affirming our common spiritual union with Christ. Okay, it's a, it's a physical expression of shared relationship with Jesus. It's, it's a, a visible act of fellowship with God. When we eat and drink in the Supper, Feeding by faith, as it were, on Jesus' all-satisfying provision, we, we enjoy the sweet gift of fellowship with him. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you've experienced that, Christian, at different points in your life. As the, as the bread and wine nourish our body in a physical sense, so our, our faith in Jesus is nourished in a spiritual sense through the supper. But but don't miss the the horizontal implication here. Chapter 10, verse 17. Look there. 
Yep, fellowship with God, but, but it goes another direction too. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For or because we all partake of the one bread. So catch this, all right? When we share the supper, we're not just affirming and enacting our, our spiritual union with God. We're also affirming and enacting a spiritual union with one another as fellow members of his body. And what Paul teaches us in that verse, hear this, flies directly in the face of what many of us have been taught. And dare I say, what many Americans like to believe. Can I go there? Why am I going there? Okay. Because we like to think the supper is all about me and Jesus. (laughs) enjoying this personal, beautiful, spiritual moment. Like, like, don't talk to me. Somebody please play in the background. I hope their phone is muted. Can you quit coughing? Like, I, I just want to kind of dial in with Jesus here. Well, friend, may you be reassured of the Lord's presence with you if you're a Christian during the supper, but hear me on this. It's not about you and Jesus. It's not about you and Jesus. It's about our union in him and as a result, our union with one another as fellow members of his body. Eating together from one loaf of bread publicly affirms we are part of Christ's body, the church. In other words, it's a corporate meal. It's an us meal. It's, it's not a you and Jesus off by yourself individual meal. It's about fellowship with God, yes, and fellowship with one another. Why? Because you cannot separate those two things in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're bound together. They both go down together. As Paul says in verse 17, look at the verse. The very act of sharing communion, this is stunning, it is an essential part of what actually makes us a local church. And binds us together as members of his body. What does he say? He doesn't just say, as there's one bread, so check it out. You're also one body. No, because there is one bread, you're one body. Because we all partake of the one bread. And that, my friend, is why we celebrate it together. Think about this. In in verses 17 and 18 and 20, Back to chapter 11. Paul describes the context of the Lord's Supper as when you come together or when you come together as a church. Why why does he do that? Well, Because the Lord's Supper is a meal for the gathered church. But Paul expects the Corinthians, in other words, to, to share communion in a context that's consistent with the corporate significance of the meal. And that is why we don't, we don't lead through communion over a live stream or watch a bride and a groom share it at a wedding while other Christians stand around or, or take it even to a hospital room. It's, it's a meal Christ has given to his spiritual family to be enjoyed by the whole family because it's a meal that by its very nature affirms our unity as a family. So it's an expression of fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. 
act of remembrance, act of fellowship. Here's the last thing. What is the Lord's Supper? It's an act of mission. An act of mission. Back to the Corinthians. So, so the Corinthians were eating a meal that says, we are one. That's what the meal says. While their actions at the meal declare the exact opposite. And yet, notice this. God used, look at verse 19, chapter 11. God used even their deceit and division to accomplish his good purposes. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Let's review the last two weeks. <laughs> An essential part of our responsibility as a local church is, is recognizing or affirming genuine professions of faith and denying false professions of faith. How do we do that? Through a biblical practice of church membership. Because we thought it would be a cool idea and distinguish our denomination. No. <laughs> because that's what the Lord commands us to do in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. We, we affirm professions of faith by using our God-given authority, it's not ours ultimately, to baptize people. Welcoming them to church membership. And, and we, we continue to affirm their profession of faith by what? By eating with them at the Lord's table through communion. So, so the Lord's Supper, in other words, rightly practiced, it does throughout the whole Christian life what baptism does at the beginning of the Christian life. It, it marks off and recognizes, distinguishes the church from the world. Those who are part of his body from those who are not. Those who are members of his body, those, those who are not. And 1 Corinthians 5, if you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, Matthew, you're pushing beyond the text here. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Provides a wonderful example of this exact principle. So look at verse 1, chapter 5. Paul's still writing. We still got problems. <laughs> It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the final step of church discipline. Removing someone from membership in the local church. But, but here's the question, friend. What, what practical difference does that really make? Beyond pulling their name off a list of members at the church office. Does it make a difference? Should it make a difference? Well, Paul's point here is that it must make a tremendous and publicly visible difference. Look at verse 9, chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Those are sobering words in a world that says, whatever you do, Christian, don't you dare judge anyone. It's easy to get on board with, you know? I won't judge you, you won't judge me, but, but yet, what do we do with verse 12? It's a clear responsibility. Is it not those inside the church whom you, Corinthians, are to judge? Must judge, should judge? Judgment in the kingdom of God is not categorically wrong. Rightly done, it's a gift of grace. It's a loving expression of the Lord's discipline. So what, what, what is this kind of eating that Paul forbids? Don't even eat with such a one. Well, it's the kind of eating that, that tells a spiritual lie. The, the kind of eating that that affirms fellowship, close association with someone as a member of the body of Christ, when the course of their life completely contradicts their profession. At a a minimum, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. How do we know that? Well, Well, because in the immediate context, Paul's admonition, verse 11, chapter 5, We've got his instruction in verses 6 through 8 about how to keep the Passover festival under the new covenant. Paul's saying that as as eating the Passover marked off the people of God under the old covenant, so now sharing the Lord's Supper marks off the people of God under the new covenant. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. What is the Passover festival under the new covenant? It's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. Let us celebrate the festival, the Lord's Supper. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. But with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's he saying? That to share the supper with someone who's living in unrepentant sin is the opposite of sincerity and truth. It is to celebrate the festival in an unworthy manner, Corinthians, King's Way. Why? Why? Because their participation denies the sanctifying effect of Christ's sacrifice. That's the reason Paul's admonishing all the existing members of the church in Corinth. Back to chapter 11. Look at verse 28. What does he say? Let a person therefore examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why? Look at verse 29, chapter 11. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, we'll come back to that, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You know, there are moments in sermons where I say, okay, now hang with me. We got to think carefully. You ready? 
Hang with me. <laughs> we got to think carefully, okay? What is this discerning the body business? Well, to discern the body is to soberly ask a really a simple question. What is the true nature of my relationship with the body of Christ? What's the nature of that relationship? Has the one institution God has ordained on earth to affirm professions of faith, the local church, affirmed my profession of faith through baptism and membership? And have they continued to affirm my profession of faith as a member in good standing? Or is there unrepentant sin in my life such that I I no longer have biblical grounds for confidence in the truth of my profession, the authenticity of my profession. Your, your own assessment, please hear me, friend. Your own assessment of where you are at with the Lord is important, but it is also entirely insufficient. Anyone can say they are good with God. Do you realize that? I'm willing to bet there are People you know, Christian, who are convinced they are good with God. But you're asking your fellow Christian friends to pray for them because you know they're not at all good with God. They're experiencing what our sin and rebellion against the Lord does to all of us, absent God's mercy and grace in our life. We're deceived. We're blind. Anyone can say they're good with God or be convinced that their children are right with God or convince their parents that they're right with God. A far more objective and reliable test, a necessary test, is whether Jesus' authorized representative on earth, the local church, agrees with your assessment or not. Think of it this way. The family of God has to recognize you as one of their own before you just pull up a chair and sit down at the family meal. How odd would that be? You know, on holidays, many of us have family meals. If a random person walked in off the street, grabbed a folding chair from your family room and just, you know, you're about to pray, everybody's milling around and sat down and you look around and you're like, hello, (laughs) I'm Matthew. (laughs) You know, who are you? Good to meet you, but, but this is a family meal. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm part of the family. Well, did any of us tell you you're part of the family? <laughs> the family has to recognize you as one of their own before you eat a meal reserved for the family. That's Paul's point. So as baptism is our, our initial affirmation of a profession of faith, Here's the point. So the Lord's Supper is our ongoing affirmation of a profession of faith. And 1 Corinthians 5 makes that crystal clear, the passage we just looked at. Because when when we welcome someone to the Lord's table, think about this. Who we welcome to the table, just like who we baptize, we're publicly declaring to them and to the church and to the world God's word gives us confidence to believe your profession of faith. It's just like baptism. 
And that's why I say the supper, rightly administered, is an act of mission. Remembrance, fellowship, and mission. Why? We declare the truth of the gospel, not merely by eating the supper, but by virtue of who we welcome to the table. Because who we welcome to the table tells the world and the church, this is what it looks like to trust and obey Jesus. So it's an act of remembrance, act of fellowship, act act of mission. Look at verse 26, chapter 11. It's so clear, the missional goal here. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You do your job, church. You tell the world where to look to see Jesus. You you clarify for the world that desperately needs to know who speaks for Jesus and who does not. You rescue people out of the delusion that it's good enough for me if I think I'm right with God. God loves you too much to say, good luck with your personal discernment. You know how jacked up my personal discernment can be? (laughs) You you ever thought something was true and then you just, you live a little bit or things change and God works in your heart and you're like, wow, mom and dad are really right. You know, you just, our hearts are deceitful. And God loves you enough too much, friend, to say, just use your personal discernment. Use it. Examine yourself. What's 1 Corinthians 5 remind us? Lean in to the affirmation and assessment and evaluation of the one institution, the one body on earth that Jesus has given his authority to affirm and deny professions of faith. Not just because he's on a power trip, but because he loves you. He loves us. He loves his glory. That's what the supper is. Oh boy. (laughs) We need to move. Okay. Who should participate? Question two. Who should participate? Well, thankfully, I think the answer to this question really falls out of what the supper is. All right. Just reflects what the supper is. So in brief, here's the summary. And then I'll explain a bit. In brief, the Lord's supper is for baptized members of a local church that preach the gospel. Baptized members of a local church that preaches the gospel. So, why is church membership necessary? Well, I hope I don't even need to answer that at this point, but but to review, it's because of what the supper signifies, what it says, right? It's a participation in the body of Christ. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Isn't participation in the universal body of Christ sufficient? Isn't that enough? Pastor, well, remember the context of 1 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11. Is Paul writing to the universal body of Christ? Certainly has implications, but who's he writing to? Who's the original intended audience? The local church in Corinth. Gathered under the authority of her elders, just like we are. The the local assembly is the assumed biblical context for the supper. As there is one bread in 1 Corinthians 10, 17 that is tangible and physical, so too there is one body in 1 Corinthians 10, 17 that is tangible and physical. So, implication, if a local church has not affirmed your profession of faith, 
by welcoming you into church membership or has stopped affirming your profession of faith by lovingly excluding you from church membership, then you are lying to yourself. You are lying to the Christians around you and you are lying to the world and ultimately to God. If you of your own volition decide, I am going to participate in the family meal. That's pride, friend. It will not do to say, I know I'm a member of the family. May you know, 1 John 5, I write these things to you that you may what? Know that you are children of the living God. But, but the question ultimately is, has the family recognized you as a member of the family? I'm not saying that the church bestows the gift of salvation to those of you that might be coming from a different context. I am saying that the family has to recognize you before you eat the family meal. That's what church membership is all about. And, and what is the biblical means that God has given his family, the local church, to affirm professions of faith? How do we do it? If that's our job, how do we do it? What's the sacrament of baptism, right? Because we can personally believe we're going to see someone in heaven, but, but our public affirmation of your faith depends on your willingness to publicly profess your faith in the way scripture requires, starting with baptism. In other words, I said this last Sunday, Christ has done more than just call us to publicly judge who is part of his body and who is not and just do that however we see fit to do. No, he's given us the call and he's given us the means. It's the sacraments. He's tied our public judgment to the sacraments. So if you have not professed your faith and had your profession affirmed in the way the Lord of the church requires, baptism and membership, then we cannot act like you're a member of his body. And we must not encourage you or the world to believe, to start thinking that you are a member of his body by inviting you to eat at the Lord's table. Tracking? So the whole point, the whole point is that coming to the table, sharing the Lord's Supper, participating in communion, isn't just this individual me and Jesus decision. It's a corporate decision requiring a corporate affirmation of faith in the ways God has prescribed. So that's what the supper is. That's who should share it. Last question, how should we celebrate it? How should we celebrate it? I think in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord gives us, speaking so clearly through Paul, at least three attitudes that should mark what we do. Okay, three attitudes that should characterize the way we practice the supper. Here's the first. We should practice the supper, we should celebrate the supper with love. With love. Now, why do I start with this? Because I have a sneaking suspicion that some of you may be thinking right now, I'm hearing a lot from the pulpit today that doesn't feel very loving. I get that. But could I respectfully suggest that that might be because our thinking has been more calibrated by the world around us than scripture? And if you'll grant me that that's even a possibility, don't tune me out. Keep listening. We should celebrate it with love. Why do I say with love? 
Love means that we help one another. Look at verse 27, chapter 11. We help one another eat and drink in a worthy manner. We help each other do that. We, we help people to examine themselves. Verse 28, we, we help people to discern their relationship with Christ's body. That's verse 29, which means we clearly explain who should participate in the supper and who should not. That's an act of love, in other words. And, and the church has historically called that thing, that pastoral labor, who should participate, who should not. It's historically been called, a history of the church, fencing the table. Okay, fencing the table. And, and for as long as I can remember, and I'm really speaking to some of you who've been members of this church for decades, like I have, we, we have essentially fenced the table at Kingsway. It's come out of different ways, but we've basically said something like this. If you believe you're a Christian, you're welcome to participate. If you believe you're a Christian, you're welcome to participate. You think you're a Christian, eat with us. We, we've stopped well short of what 1 Corinthians 11 and 5 and 10 all require. That, that those who participate in the supper have to be, must be, member in good standing of a local church that preaches the gospel. Have to be that. And by not mentioning church membership as a requirement, friends, I, I think inadvertently, but in a real way, in our church, we, we have unintentionally <laughs> reinforced the very American assumption that communion is about me and Jesus. I think we've done that. Like, I'm not implicating you. I'm like talking about us, okay? This is a, if you're visiting Kingsway, celebrating different things, we've a lot going on today. Welcome to a family conversation, all right? I think we've, we've reinforced that assumption that it's about me and Jesus, not my relationship to his body, the church. Just me and Jesus. And as we've studied this topic over the last couple of years as, as pastors, we've, we've really begun talking about identifying four significant spiritual consequences of not fencing the Lord's table more carefully. Okay, so let me give them to you, all right, to bring you into this. First, what's the risk? We, we fail to exercise our God-given authority as a church. If Jesus decided in the perfection of his wisdom, and he is perfect in wisdom, amen, that it's our job, Kingsway, it's your job, to affirm and deny professions of faith, then we have to take that responsibility seriously. We have to. We don't get to say, well, that feels exclusive. How could we do that without offending people? Well, the gospel by its very definition offends people. So if your MO is how do we offend the least number of people, you're not preaching the gospel. You're not loving people. You're loving yourself by trying to make people like you. If you need people to like you, you'll never love them. We don't want to be that kind of church. Our job is not to say, come one, come all, or if you think you're a Christian, join in, because that fails to do what Jesus has called us to do. What's our job? Our job is to carefully extend assurance of salvation, carefully withhold assurance of salvation. And God's told us how to do it in his word. It's not complicated. Baptize and share the supper with genuine believers. Don't baptize and withhold the supper from those who are not genuine believers. If we're not using the biblical criteria God's given us, we're not 
exercising our authority. Here's the second consequence, second risk. We give people a false assurance of salvation. Feel the weight of that. We give people a false assurance of salvation. Brothers and sisters, so many people come into this room thinking they're Christians. Thinking they're good with God when they're not. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family or you believe God exists or you think of yourself as a decent person and that's why you think you're a Christian. Friend, if you think those things, I am really glad you're here. (laughs) So thankful you're here because what you need to hear is the truth of the gospel. What Jesus has done for us, what what it means to repent of your sins and trust in Christ and follow him. But there are many with us on Sunday that don't understand the gospel yet. Haven't responded to the gospel with repentance and faith. faith. And, And please hear this. If you remember this church, I have from this pulpit watched them share communion. Trembling at the thought that right now they were drinking judgment on themselves. Why do I tremble at that thought? (laughs) Because I love image bearers of the living God. Because God does. It's simply not loving King's way to say where you're at with God is between you and God. Will you answer to God individually, friend? Absolutely. But if someone in this room does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they must be courageously warned, not falsely comforted. That's what love does, okay? Woe to us if we proclaim peace where there is no peace. Woe to us that the attitude that says, I know I'm a Christian, your job church pastor is to make me feel welcome is the very pride that will lead you away from the living God. Give people false assurance if we're not careful. Third, we incur judgment on ourselves and we lead others in the same. But look back at Verse 30, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's not kidding when he warns, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Oh, come on, Paul. You're kidding me. It's a little piece of bread and like, I don't even think that's real wine. I wish they would use it. That would be fun. (laughs) You're kidding me. No, he's not. No, Paul is drawing a straight line of causality. (laughs) Straight line connection between people who thought they were Christians but are not genuine believers, participating in the supper, and suffering the physical consequences of disease and death. Straight line. It's an expression of God's righteous judgment. And we shouldn't be surprised. Why not? Because denigrating the gospel 
proclaiming fellowship with Christ and his people by eating the supper while denying all of those things through the pattern of your life is not a light thing with God. It's a serious thing. Because his glory's on the line. His reputation's on the line. Helping one another discern the true nature of our relationship to Christ's body isn't optional. Kingsway. It's not just the pastor's job. It's our responsibility because it's a matter of life and death. Here's the last consequence. If we don't carefully fence the table, we lie about Jesus by softening the offense of the gospel. Here's the sober reality. Okay. Hang with me here. We can doctrinally, mentally deny universalism. This idea that in the end, everyone is saved. We can deny that in our minds, in our hearts, with our words, while functionally encouraging universalism. How do we do that? By making the invitation to the supper so wide and so broad that that we stop bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. Who we welcome and don't welcome to the table is a God-given opportunity to speak the truth about the Lord of the table. It's, It's one of the most important ways we declare. Here's what it means to have fellowship with God and to help those who gather with us to participate in a worthy manner. God protect us from lacking the biblical love necessary to fence the table biblically. So we, we, our participation, our celebration should be marked by love Two more. These are quicker. Second, it should be marked or characterized by integrity. We celebrate with integrity, love and integrity. What's this? Well, our corporate responsibility to fence the table, that's what I've been talking about, does not remove our personal responsibility to soberly examine ourselves before we eat and drink by asking two questions. Okay, here are the questions. First, has Christ authorized representative on earth church affirmed my profession of faith or not? Examine yourself. Ask that question. Second, even if they have, even if you are a member of Kingsway, or baptized member of another church that preaches Christ, are you still walking the road of repentance? You still walking that road? Is, is there any sin in your life where you are stubbornly Continuing to go your way instead of God's way. You're not fighting for godliness. You're just giving in. Hear me. (laughs) I'm not talking about some kind of excessive introspection. That's another sermon. But I'm talking, look at verse 31, chapter 11. About judging yourself truly by evaluating the spiritual direction of your life, especially the way you're handling relationship with other Christians. Are you, are you working for the unity that the supper proclaims or are you, are you nursing bitterness and resentment? Eating the bread and drinking the cup will do you no good and significant harm if your life doesn't line up, doesn't testify, To the truth the supper proclaims. We celebrate with integrity. Integrity. 
Lastly, we celebrate with joy. Celebrate with joy, not optional. Commanded. Follow with me here, okay? The whole reason Paul is just aghast at the Corinthians' behavior. What? (laughs) Right? What? Is because they were abusing something incredibly precious. Which is why his pastoral goal and the Lord's heart for us, Kingsway, goes way further than correction or merely teaching us to rightly judge ourselves. That's important. But Paul's aim, the Lord's aim is what? Ultimately, it's genuine repentance, right? It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ expressed through love for his body leading to the joy of salvation. Look at verse 32. Hear the father's heart in this. The sickness and death that they were experiencing on account of, of misusing the Lord's Supper was ultimately an expression of the Lord's loving discipline for their church. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may what? Get the Lord's Supper right and cross all our T's and dot all our I's and pat ourselves on the back as a good Orthodox church. Nope. (laughs) What's the goal? Salvation is the goal. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Do you see that? The the Father's ultimate goal, Paul knew, wasn't to punish the Corinthians, but to get their attention so that they would be redeemed and restored. Not being condemned along with the world. That's God's heart for you, friend. That's God's desire for you. He, He longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. He he will not be trifled with or stand idly by while we misuse a meal he created for our good and his glory. But please remember this. The supper is way more than an identity marker. It's a celebration. It's a celebration, a joyful celebration of all Christ has done for us, which by the way, is the only reason it can function as an identity marker. (laughs) The supper says Jesus lived for you, Christian. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from the grave. We sang that this morning for you. And if, and if you're holding fast to him, then know this. Not only in, in your eyes, but in the eyes of your brothers and sisters around you in a local church, you can know this. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been forgiven, you've been cleansed, you've been healed. Where your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That we celebrate in the supper too. So listen carefully to me. We wrap up. Thank you for hanging with me this morning. This sermon's been three years in the making. If your struggle is the exact opposite of the Corinthians, I want to have a word with you. Can I have a word with you? You hear Paul speak about all this honoring Christ, examining yourself, eating, drinking in a worthy manner, and you can feel waves of anxiety, maybe even condemnation, rising in your heart right now. It's not the gracious gift of conviction. It's a creeping sense of unworthiness over the presence of remaining sin in your life. Friend, if that's you, I want you to hear the words of Martin Luther's good friend, Philip Melanchthon. Some will not venture to profess Christ 
until they can profess themselves. They wait for worthiness to come to the Lord's table, not considering that it is unworthiness which they are to profess. Along with Christ's worthiness, their sins along with his name for the remission of sins. What does the Lord's Supper ultimately remember and celebrate and proclaim? It's not your worthiness, it's Jesus. The whole point of the meal, the whole point of the meal is that you were unworthy, but Jesus is worthy. That's the point. And all who by faith are found in him are worthy in him. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus both invites us to the table and then he gives us the right clothes to wear. Spotless garments of righteousness. For all who despair of saving themselves and and run to the Lord for mercy. So friends, may, may all who are in Christ Jesus share the Lord's Supper with grateful joy because it's the best meal you're ever gonna eat. Some of you are like, no way. When we did the COVID thing and, you know, we were all sort of isolated and I swear that bread was styrofoam. I I don't know. Maybe it was. (laughs) Okay. But why do I say it's the best meal you'll ever eat? Seriously. Because no one satisfies like Jesus does. No one satisfies. Like Jesus does. He wants his joy in God to be your joy in God. So examine yourself, but don't stop there. Look to Christ. Fix your eyes on him and rejoice. You are not worthy. He is exceedingly worthy, which is why the Lord's Supper isn't this big, scary church thing. It's a celebration. Now, a lot of you are thinking we're going to share the supper right now, aren't you? We're actually not. Surprise. <laughs> All of you think, I know how Williams works. We're going to supper and sing. and We're not. Because we want to give you time to examine yourself. Time to discern the body. Time, time to wrestle with what you've heard today so that, that all who participate in the supper in this church do so in a worthy manner the next time we share the Lord's Supper, okay? You you may need to have some conversation with one of our elders. We'd love to do that. You may need to have some conversation with one of your kids. We we don't want to rush that or or tempt you to to violate your conscience by immediately asking you, okay, you know, choose now. Should you participate or not? No, no, we're, we're deliberately not eating this morning. Instead, we're going to do something that is most appropriate, after hearing a sermon about a meal that celebrates our membership in the body of Christ, we're going to welcome 12 members into this spiritual family who have professed their faith through baptism and in so doing, whom we have affirmed as members in good standing. So let's pray and then Josh is going to lead us in that process, okay? Father, thank you that you have given us clear authority and clear means We want to love you by doing what you've called us to do. We want to love the world. We want to love the church. Help us, I pray, to be faithful and humble and truthful. In Jesus' name.
Amen.